and welcome to the August 2008 edition of Ordinary Means. I'm your host, Sean Nolan, here today at the table, at the, the internet table, with Matt Bowling. Hey, Sean. Hello, Matt. Welcome to uh, the podcast today. Thanks. And we have another special guest uh, this month. Uh, we're here with Stephen Lewis. Hi, Sean. Hey, Stephen. Uh, good to uh, good to have you with us as well. Thank you. Now, you both, uh, Matt and Stephen, are on the other side of the continent. They're over on the left coast. Um, Proudly. How, how, how far are you guys from each other? Uh, about a few three, hours. How many? Two hours, you think? Okay. He's yeah, an experienced a, a few, Maybe three a hours. Few. Yeah. Yeah. Stephen is in uh, Salem, Oregon. Uh, you've successfully planted a church in Salem, Oregon. Uh, although the church planting process, does it ever end? It's never over. You have to plant it more than one time. <laughs> Keep re- replanting. <clears throat> every every yeah. every time someone new comes, it's it's a replant. Yeah, I love that parable where Jesus talks about uh, the the tree that hasn't borne fruit and. And, you know, he intercedes for it for one more year. He's going to dig up the dirt around it and then see what happens. So, Well, very good. Uh, good to uh, have, you, have you with us. And we're going um, to talk today about something that uh, Stephen and I were, were privy to, but, and Matt has now uh, listened online to, and that was at the uh, PCA General Assembly in June. There was a colloquium on the sacraments. Now, obviously, with a uh, with a podcast called Ordinary Means, uh, where we're dealing with the word sacraments and prayer, uh, we we couldn't help but uh, attend this, and we couldn't help but uh, respond to it uh, because it it really it was a response to this whole federal vision thing that's been going on. Uh, maybe, guys, we want to talk a little bit about that. Why? Why this colloquium at this time? Why did we have four guys uh, who are all part of the PCA but come from very different perspectives on the sacraments uh, come together and talk together at the PCA? Let me just give you a list of who uh, spoke at this colloquium. Uh, colloquium. Uh, Will Barker, who is church history professor, 40 years church history professor at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia. Uh, Rob Rayburn, who is the pastor of Faith PCA in Tacoma, Washington. Um, Jeff Myers, who is the pastor of Providence Reformed uh, PCA in St. Louis. And Ligon Duncan, who is the uh, uh, senior minister at First Presbyterian in Jackson, Mississippi. Now, guys, why, why do you think this colloquium at this time? Stephen, you want to go first? Yeah, sure. I, I think it's a response to the perception that there were some loose ends, uh, you know, not tied up from last year's General Assembly, the, the 2007 Assembly in Memphis, where the Assembly spoke clearly on what we believe the Westminster Confession of Faith says about the Federal Vision theology. And the Assembly in 07 adopted... Was it a nine-point document that said, hey, here are some, or at least nine areas where 
uh, Auburn Avenue Federal Vision theology differs from our confessional standards. At the time, a lot of people who were sympathetic towards Federal Vision were saying, hey, uh, there hasn't been enough study yet. We haven't really listened to one another yet. And so whomever it was that put this colloquium together was graciously saying, hey, let's let's try to do that. Let's listen to each other. Um, especially since in some people's minds there's some question as to how to best apply or live out what those nine points instructed the Presbyteries to do. So is that kind of what you guys thought it was about? I think so, because I, I think that it... When you have a study committee come out and then a report's adopted by a very large margin, as it was, um, you sort yeah. of have the sense of where most of the denomination is. And yet, in the midst of that, one of the complaints, and I think that it, it had some validity, um, was that people's voices weren't heard who were dissenting. I, I mean, they, their voice was heard in the debate, but not in terms of what the kinds of emphases they were trying to bring to the table. And so the colloquium, I think, was a good opportunity where we were able to say as a denomination, here's where we stand, but also we do want to hear your voice. We, right. we do want to hear the kinds of things that you're saying, not in the sense of changing standards or changing presbytery uh, acceptance criteria for transfer or for ordination, but in terms of, okay, here's the kind of an environment where we can have these discussions where it's public, it's open, it's not innuendo, we're talking directly to each other, we're not doing it from behind a keyboard. Uh, we can say what we say and say it like men, and these men did, which was admirable, actually. For as different as they were, they were quite kind and helpful to each other uh, in person. The fact that what they're addressing, too, the, collo- the title of the colloquium was On the Efficacy of the Sacraments. Uh, right there, it, what a huge issue. Uh, what an issue that has been uh, disagreed on throughout uh, church history. This was the whole uh, issue surrounding the Reformation: is what actually happens when we take the sacraments. Um, so on a on a on a big historical level, it's an issue. On a theological issue, it's a level. Uh, on a theological level, it's an issue. Um, on a, on a practical level, and I think this is really what came out in the colloquium. On the practical level. Uh, we there is a great amount of mystery. I regularly have uh, people in my congregation come up to me and ask me, you know, what's happening when I take the sacraments? You know, what's hmm. happening when I when my child gets baptized? What what's happening when I take the Lord's Supper? Now, praise God that they're asking it. Because or what's supposed to happen? True. What, what role is it yeah. supposed to have in my life? True. Pastor, you want me to take the Lord's Supper every week, but why? You know, and those are those are good questions to have, actually. I think. Well, the what it's supposed to do, I think the uh, we have we have a, a clear idea of what it's supposed to do. It's supposed to strengthen our faith. It's supposed to uh, build us up. It's supposed to point us to Christ. It's you know all the things that we've been talking about for months and months. Uh, but then there is that spiritual aspect, that mysterious aspect of what's going on, and that is something that this colloquium uh, addressed. Now, as we go through uh, what we're going to do 
uh, for the next uh, 45 minutes or an hour is we're going to go through each of the speakers, talk about, maybe give you a a rundown, a summary of what they said, and uh, talk a little bit about what was good and and what was bad about what they said, um, what we appreciated, maybe what we didn't appreciate. Uh, So we'll go through each of those at... uh, when we post this, I'm going to put up links to two things. One is the actual papers that these men produced. Uh, those are available in PDF online. And then I'm also going to put a link to the audio so you can go and listen to it. So uh, at certain points, we may reference page numbers. Um, if we do that, uh, know that those, those papers are accessible. And, and like I said, we'll put up links to them. Uh, let's uh, let's begin with uh, with Will Barker. He he started the whole thing off, and he started off uh, really with a reminder of what church history has already said about this issue. Uh, I remember Stephen and I talking afterwards. Uh, we both said, you know, there there wasn't anything new, uh, there wasn't anything surprising in what he said, uh, but at the same time. What he said needed to be said because in the midst of talking about all this mystery, uh, it seems we've lost a little bit of sight of what we gained in the Reformation. Uh, the Reformation yeah. nailed down these issues. They nailed down what, what's supposed to happen when uh, when we take of the sacraments. And, um, and it seems like some of the disagreement that we're seeing today is because... Uh, some of these guys seem to have just hopped over the Reformation. They've gone from the medieval church into the modern church, and they've missed all the benefits of what the Reformation provided. Would, would you guys agree with that? Yeah, it, it's not so much that some of these um, men are totally ignorant of the Reformation or the Reformation no, not writers. At not at all. But, no, no, no. But no. that, for various reasons... It, it's just not resonating with them anymore, and so they're they're not they're not giving some of the sources the the most charitable reading, and and, uh, and not finding some of their questions answered, and so then then there does seem to be at some point a real lack of appreciation for the the gains that that were realized in the Reformation. Well, and also I think, too, that there's a little, and this is, I'm going to pick on a friend here without naming him, but um, I think there's also a, you know, later is better sort of philosophy. So if you were to read Matheson's book, for example, that I'm sure Sean will put a link up there, too, where he tries to recover Calvin's doctrine of the supper, um, Calvin probably did have a little bit more robust view of the supper than your standard Westminster divine did. So do we go with the Westminster Divine, or do we recognize that they lived in an environment and what they wrote was sufficiently broad to cover the whole stream in this matter of Reformed theology as it developed, or do we go with something that's very, very narrow and we end up Scottish and, you know, once a year or twice a year in terms of the supper? So I think there's a little bit of, if it's later, it must be better, but not too late. (laughs) 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 Right? So... um, I think we've got to be a little bit careful in that, too, is that we don't just go with, well, that's our tradition, um, but we go back and we say, you know, what should this look like? And maybe something that was a little bit earlier than that terminus point um, was better. I don't know. What do you guys think of that? 
there's always the uh, the debate between the the new and the innovative and the old dead guys. Um, I, I think the key is to seeing the progression, uh, to seeing right. that even even in the medieval ages there were guys who were who were holding forth uh, a lamp, um, who were holding out the uh, that scarlet thread of redemption, even through the what, what some would call the dark ages. Right. And uh, and that it really the Reformation was the culmination of the Middle Ages. The Reformation was um, all the good and the bad uh, finally becoming uh, disenchanted with one another, and uh, and facing off and saying no 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 this this is what we believe. One of the things Frank Bar- I'm sorry Will Barker pointed out in. Um, as you pointed out earlier, Matt, Frank Barker is a different individual than Will Barker. And I don't believe they're related. Um, I don't believe they are. The thing that Will Barker pointed out in his paper, um, and I, I don't think I got this as much, maybe, Stephen, you can correct me, I didn't get this as much when he when he read his paper, but again and again he says this, he says that the the way we understand the sacraments rightly administered uh, which is really a big a, a big part of the issue here. We'll see that especially when we get to Jeff Myers, that, that the issue for many of these guys is, are we doing the sacraments right? And um, Right, I mean, that, that's Myers' main point. He just keeps harping on this. You've got to do the ritual right. Yes. And, you know, it was just making me squirm to, to hear that as the big emphasis. Well, what Barker pointed out at the very beginning of all this is he said that what the, the ref, what the reformers meant when they said that the word must be rightly taught and the sacraments rightly administered is that they set forth the gospel of salvation by grace alone through faith alone. That that's, that's what we mean when we say rightly administered. We mean that they set forth the gospel. And, right. and in fairness to Myers, I think he would he would agree with that. He'd say, "Yeah, and I'm just trying to bring out some of the implications of that gospel." It's just I think I disagree with him about the gospel, perhaps. Hmm. Well, we'll definitely uh, we'll de- we'll definitely look more at his paper um, yeah. here here in a moment. And, and I think uh, I think as you're suggesting, Stephen, there's a, there's a lot of good. That that Myers had, and I don't want to. I don't want to just pounce yeah. on him because he's been very sympathetic to the Federal Vision. Um, I think we can rightly pull out his uh, um, some of his concerns, um, but perhaps the way he addresses those concerns is not what the Reformed Church needs to hear right now. Uh, anyway, we can we can get to that in a little bit. Um, what do you guys think of that? Is that how you've commonly understood sacraments rightly administered is showing forth the gospel? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I, I um, just having done the Lord's Supper this past week, um, try and find a new way to say a very similar thing each time that I preside over the table, which is, God here speaks of his love for you. He shows forth the gospel. He's trying to talk to you here at the table to convince you of his love, to tell you, indeed, <laughs> Christ has been punished, so you don't have to be. Christ has died, so you don't have to be. That wonderful language from the Heidelberg Catechism. As sure, as surely, as the minister breaks the bread, Christ was broken for you. Um, 
And so, yeah, I think God's there trying to speak very distinctly to us um, the gospel in, in a way that our eyes can see it. Well, that that's very good, Matt. And I, you know, when we think about the sacraments rightly administered in our Book of Church order in the BCO, it even gets <clears throat> to the point of details of saying things like, "Have the table, the, the communion table, the, the Lord's table, have it." Uh, be covered with a cloth. And when we start reading those kinds of details, it's like, hey, wait a minute. Uh, <laughs> isn't that getting a little too specific about the ritual? And, but, but hear this from the Book of Church Order, because it, in BCO 47-5, there's just this lovely little paragraph, which I think gets at the heart of what it would mean to be, you know, rightly ordered. It says, public worship must be performed in spirit and in truth. Externalism and hypocrisy stand condemned. The forms of public worship have value only when they serve to express the inner reverence of the worshiper and his sincere devotion to the true and living God. And only those whose hearts have been renewed by the Holy Spirit are capable of such reverence and devotion. And so if the gospel is rightly preached, it's going to, you know, by God's grace, he will use that preaching to um, provoke such a response in the hearers. And, and then, you know, then you'll have true worship. But to kind of start on, here, let's get the formula right, and then we'll know that we've got it rightly ordered, seems to be rather backwards. Hmm. Uh, Barker sums uh, sums up here in his paper uh, the whole reformed uh, take on on ceremony as it came to the uh, as it came to the sacraments, and he says this. He says that the dependence was not on the proper ceremony, but rather on the inward working of the Holy Spirit, and that's exactly what you've just read in that in that little paragraph. Wow, uh, we, which is so. Which is so good that that's what we need to remember. Are we coming rightly? Are we are we coming? When we say that, when we say, "Are we coming rightly?" We're saying, "Are we coming with faith?" All right, for sure. And and that just we want to be we want to be careful. I think that the the uh, PCA maybe has been uh, too focused on. The ritual, making sure we say everything exactly as we're supposed to say it every time that we uh, that we conduct the the Lord's table, you know, making sure that that we we warn, making sure that we uh, you know don't let anyone pro- improperly partake, uh, but at the same time, have we been as uh, emphatic uh, that? This is a meal that we take by faith. I think that that's good. I mean, I think that Rob's point that fencing the table, we can't see that as a liturgical action in the scriptures. I thought that was an interesting point that that he made in the, I'm not sure if it's in his paper, but it certainly was in his response to the other guys. I think that it's a faithful way of implementing in a service what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11. So I would put it in the category of, of uh, inference. Um, 
But another friend of this podcast, Jack Kinnear, would say we should never call it fence in the table. We should call it an invitation to the table. And some people are invited and some people aren't. And they're the ones who decide whether there's an invitation in their hand or not. Um, and so it, it, in a sense, we're trying to uphold multiple things. And it seems like to me, and maybe this is just a seem like, that in the interest of the great benefit that is gained from something like weekly communion, it seems like some of the guys don't want to, while they're elevating something so highly, in a sense, it seems like, and it could be wrong, that they're also diminishing it by not clearly laying out who can benefit from this meal week by week in a clear invitation. Um, I, I think that, that that actually doesn't benefit the community because you have people that are coming that ought not and people who ought to come who are not. Um, if there's not clarity in a clear, concise invitation. Um, now, you guys both do weekly communion. I don't. So maybe you figured out a way to do the both of those where it's not this, you know, 10-minute thing um, that you see very commonly in the PCA, um, but it still serves the function of 1 Corinthians 11. Oh, that's real helpful, Matt, because, you know, thinking about the invitation to the table and uh, making a, a clear call to, to help those who, because we're not really helping people if we imply, come to the table uh, unrepentantly in the hardness of your heart. We're, we're not really helping them to be fed by Christ. Right. Um, so... So some hard but good loving words to them right before the, the supper would be wonderful. Uh, but for those of, you know, who are in a moment of weakness and just need that encouragement to come, come to Christ in your weakness, they, they need to hear that call. It seems to me a lot of the fencing of the table takes place while the word is being preached. Because as you're preaching, wow. you're, you're addressing the believer and the unbeliever. Mm -hmm. And usually the way that I uh, open up the Lord's Supper is by tying it to the sermon that's just been preached. Uh, oftentimes my conclusion to my sermon is, uh, is a natural flow right into, uh, into the Lord's Supper where, where I remind people of what they've just heard and I use elements from the sermon to say, "Hey, if you know if you fit into this category, this is not this isn't this table isn't for you. But if you fit into this category, this table is for you." And um, and that is uh, that takes away a lot of the need for that you know that additional sermon before the Lord's Supper. Uh, if if we're preaching the gospel. And if the Lord's Supper is to show forth the gospel, um, there's not a need for a second sermon in between the two. Uh, it's just a matter of saying, you know, here's how this supper now relates to what you just heard. Yeah, because, you know, otherwise what it becomes, those, those ritual sentences that we, you know, for good reason, get in the habit of saying yeah. uh, right before the table, uh, 
it becomes kind of like those hastily uh, spoken disclaimer sentences that are maybe on, on air on a radio like a uh, advertisement. Ad. Yeah, that's, you know, or, or the yeah. um, or the medicine, the, the medication ones, where you know they're <laughs> reading you all the fine print, and, and after a while, no one ever listens to it anymore. Exactly. Exactly. Although I'll tell you, when I when I in the past have accidentally forgotten to say, um, you know, this this is a meal. Uh, you're invited if you are a, a believer, a member of a uh, uh, of a Bible believing evangelical church. Uh, there are times in the past where I've forgotten to say that. I'll tell you, I get people who come to me and remind me, you didn't say what you were supposed to say today. Yeah, that's so, true. Um, so people people notice when it's not said. I'm not sure if they uh, notice as much when it is said. I actually forgot that the last time I did the supper, but nobody said anything to me, which was nice. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know the thing when you're in a small church, sometimes you look around and you and you go, you know, there are no visitors today. I don't see any. Um, I want to make sure I address the people that I know are here and not believers. Um, but I know everybody sitting here is either a member here or uh, uh, or isn't going to come when we. When yeah, we they offer know the it. script. Yeah, <laughs> they know the script. That's right. Um, so is is salvation? This is one of the issues that that. Barker brought up um, is is salvation an individual matter or is it a community matter? Well, it, it's both, and and on page six of Barker's paper, mm-hmm. uh, he gets to some practical conclusions: individual and corporate benefits. And it's just it's a wonderful paragraph there. Uh, about mm-hmm. halfway through the paragraph, he says, As sinners who have trusted in the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus Christ, who has risen again, ascended on high, and is coming again in power and great glory, we must individually be found in him on the judgment day. But our individual salvation has corporate benefits. And then he gets into, you know, fleshing that out. So it's both. And sometimes we get on these pendulum swings where, you know, some of our evangelical friends only seem to want to talk about the individual aspect of it, and sometimes some of our Reformed covenantal friends seem to only want to emphasize the corporate. Indeed. And I think that we're, as a reaction, um, I think that in general we emphasize the, the individual uh, people's heads bowed, their eyes closed. Uh, it's an individual moment with Jesus, um, which, in a sense, it is. But on the other hand, it's a moment we're having together. It's much more like a corporate prayer, which we're also not very good at either. Um, but it's much more like a uh, a corporate prayer than an individual devotion um, that we're. We're putting ourselves consciously, purposefully together. Um, I don't think we terribly do that well. I, I don't think we do. I, I am constantly reminded of 1 Corinthians 10, where Paul talks about the fact that this this bread, this one loaf, is 
the one body of Christ, and that as we are breaking those pieces off the loaf as the bread is being passed, that that is um, that is an identification of ourselves, not just me and Jesus, uh, but me and everybody else here and Jesus and the Father and the Spirit, and um, and we do we do need to remember that. I mean, I agree with the with the criticism that uh, of communion becoming an independent thing that's that we have you know we have this worship service together but then we have communion we all sort of go into our little cocoon and you know pray our little prayers and confess our our little sins and um but it it is a it is a corporate thing but i come not on the basis of corporate faith but i come on the basis of individual faith and maybe that is where we we find the relationship of the two. I come as an individual with individual faith to a corporate meeting of of like-minded, like like faithful individuals. Yeah, it, I think it was one of uh, Jeffrey Meyer's better points. Actually, one of his three area areas of concern where he said just what you were talking about, uh, Sean, that. We have this overly introspective, individualistic way of experiencing the supper, where he, he said it in really good words, where kind of like a private mass where we curl up in on ourselves. And, and mm-hmm. that certainly would be a, a misuse of the sacrament, but you're right. And it, it, it is you as an individual who is eating and drinking, and, and it, it's... I, I would quibble on this point that I don't think we come on the basis of our faith. We would come on the basis of Christ. Uh, but your, your individual the, faith the, is the instrument. Is there. Yeah, the instrument yeah, is faith. the instrument. Yeah. You know why don't we why don't we move on to talking a little bit since we've mentioned Myers a few times here? Uh, why don't we move on to talking about his paper? Um, just if you're listening to this. Uh, if you are not, if you don't have a real familiarity with some of the uh, issues that happened in the Reformation, what Calvin believed, what Luther believed, how how we got from Calvin and Luther to the way we celebrate the sacraments, uh, Lord's Supper and Baptism today, um, Will Barker's paper is is an excellent brief uh, summary of that. Uh, particularly, you know, we didn't talk about this. Maybe we should address this before moving on to Myers. Is um, the I'm not going to be able to say this because it's Latin. The consensus tigurinus. Did I say it right? Pretty good. That right, is good. a uh, that is a fascinating uh, thing. I have not spent a great deal of time studying it. Um, but it was the it was the agreement. You'll remember there was difference between uh, Luther and Calvin on uh, the presence of Christ in the supper. Uh, Luther felt that uh, there was a um, uh, there was a real presence that Christ was there physically in some way, uh, but that the bread wasn't changed. Um, whereas Calvin. Uh, believed it, what, what we would call a real presence or a real spiritual presence, and that is that the Christ was present by faith. Uh, but then Zwingli held what was the, go ahead. Uh, held more of a, a what we would call a memorialist view, which is 
you know, Christ isn't present at all, we're just remembering what he's done. Now, that that's not, I don't think that's fully fair to, to Zwingli, particularly not later Zwingli. But what the consensus Tigurinus was, was an agreement between Calvin and, and Bullinger, who was Zwingli's successor, where they came to a mutual agreement on what was happening at the supper. And that was a huge, uh, huge deal for for the Reformation, to, for these uh, three guys to, in a sense, come together by way of that, uh, by way of that document. You were going to say, Matt? Well, I was going to say that <clears throat> in, in um, Lake Duncan's response, uh, in the response MP3, which Sean will put up there, at least a link to it, um, one of the things that he said was um, it, that real presence somehow, he thinks, doesn't communicate well. So he had adopted a view where he was saying um, true communion. Right. Which is interesting. I haven't spent, I haven't had enough hours to think about it or meditative time to, to say that because it, I, I like real presence because I like um, trying to push the people that I pastor to think about the fact that spiritual things are real. That if God's there by his spirit, God is just as much there as if Jesus was sitting in the chair next to you. And we don't tend to think that way. So, and on the one hand, I like that. On the other hand, true communion um, certainly distances itself from a Zwinglian view or a memorialist view, let's call it that, where Christ isn't there at all, um, but that there, but retains the idea that there's something unique going on. Um, sometimes you'll get a question, I can remember teaching on the sacraments and you're getting a question, um, you know, is there something different that's going on in the supper as a means of grace than in preaching? Isn't it just we get grace? And I think that there is. There's a true communion that goes on um, with God differently because he's appointed this table for that. He comes to that table differently than he does to the preaching. Um, he wants to say something. So, anyhow. Yeah, I, I agree with what Matt's saying there, that, that uh, League Duncan, it, it's it's on page 10 of his longer paper. So in these links in the different papers, there's two papers by Duncan, and one of them is 29 pages long, and it's in that one on page 10 where he, he has this paragraph where he says, it's vital to understand that Calvin's view of the Lord's Supper is not about real presence, but about true communion. Of course, Duncan, he loves, as a theologian, to make distinctions. Mm -hmm. Doesn't Sproul say that's the theologian's uh, prerogative or right to make distinctions? And, and so he's making this distinction with these two different phrases, really trying to bring out what he believes Calvin truly taught. But, yeah, I, I agree with, with Matt that we, you know, it's good to encourage one another at the table to... to uh, view the the presence of Christ there by the Holy Spirit, by the Spirit of Christ as as real. Um, but to the, to the extent that that could lead someone into speculative directions about, you know, what's happening to the elements as they uh, go through our mouth and so forth, then, then to emphasize true communion would seem to me to be real helpful. 
Yeah, because that is what we want to get away from is is that kind of, might I call it, silliness. Uh, that was the silliness of the medieval church that the Reformation was responding to, is, you know, you can't drop a crumb of bread on the floor because you've defiled the body of Christ. And, and we want to move from that to actually celebrating communion instead of worrying about the ceremony, uh, putting the focus in the right place. Um, it seems to me, though, that by, by faith... We mean, uh, we mean right focus. I, it, it, that could be that could be taken wrongly, but I, faith is putting our focus in the right place in the gospel, in Christ, um, and not in you know the the little the little bitty uh, you know my, minor issues that that go on uh, surrounding the ceremony. You know, <clears throat> on that issue. You could misread Myers to be saying that thing. You could misread him to be saying, you're doing it wrong, that's why people aren't getting it. Um, and be thinking that he means you didn't elevate it, you didn't pray to it, you didn't bow to it, you didn't set it aside rightly. And I was, I was frankly heartened that what he was heading towards was not something even remotely in that neighborhood. But more, why do we gather at this table? Um, this is a celebration. This is great. Come on, let's eat. You know, and, and that, I think, is much to be appreciated. That's true. Yeah, he, he's not saying doing the ritual right is uh, the essence of the means of grace. He's just saying that it's it, getting the ritual right, from his point of view, would would help us get more out of the meal. Is that fair? That he's saying well, I we think can it, do we can do this better, and it can encourage people even more if we did it better. That's certainly yeah. That's certainly a a, a generous um, reading on Myers. I think he comes okay. across uh, he comes across a little stronger. Um, let me see if I can if I can do a pull quote here. Um, uh, let's see. He says, "So if the Lord's Supper, for example, does not accomplish what God intends, then it may be because of God's sovereign design, or it may be because the communicants lack faith. Efficacy depends, for our part, on the faithful reception of the supper." What if the way we do the sacraments, the way the supper is performed and then experienced, is a major part of the problem? Yeah, excellent quote. That's on page one of yeah. his paper. And what, what disturbs me about that quote, that sentence that you just read where he says, Efficacy depends for our part on the faithful reception of the supper. And then the next sentence, no faith, no benefits. It seems that, so if you read that paragraph, he's following up a quote from the Westminster Shorter Catechism that says, the sacraments are an effectual means of salvation in them that by faith receive them. This is very typical of Federal Vision theology where they take faith which is an extrospective looking away from myself to the object of my faith, namely Jesus. 
And it's turning faith from this extra aspect of looking away from myself into my faithfulness. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Byers says there, efficacy depends, for our part, on the faithful reception of the supper. That's, that's not what the divines, the Westminster divines, meant by, uh, by faith receiving them. Yes. <laughs> to, to, to faith, it's, it, it's a little play on words to go from by faith, which is looking away from yourself to Christ, to by faithfulness, which is me doing unfortunately something. really looking more at yourself and how we are doing this. Yeah. Yeah, I would I would agree. That's that's where uh, that's where the tendency uh, it goes with this paper. Um, particularly yeah. when he goes from there, he gets into uh, Cain and Abel and the difference between their sacrifices. Um, you'll remember uh, Abel offered the lamb, Cain offered the the fruit of the ground, uh, because Cain was a Cain was a farmer and Abel was a shepherd. Um, uh, he, the, the standard teaching on that has always been uh, that Abel's offering was accepted because Abel had faith and Cain didn't. And Myers acknowledges that. Uh, in fact, Myers says that's, that's partly correct. But then he goes on, he says it doesn't go far enough. And he goes on to say that the real reason that uh, Cain's offering was not acceptable is because he offered the wrong thing. Do you think by analogy he's trying to say that we're offering the wrong thing? Well, he he is. Yeah. If you if you skip to the, uh, let me see, where are his? Okay, here here are his complaints. These are the three things that Myers is concerned about, and I think you're going to find what page. What page uh, you this on? is page eleven. I, I think you're going to find we agree with every one of these. I I don't think any right-minded reformed individual would not. Uh, would not agree with these. Here's his three concerns. He says, first, the overall ritual atmosphere at the table. Um, in other words, we're not we're not doing things as well as they could be done. Second, the introspective individualistic way we ritually eat this meal. Okay, we talked about that a little bit. And then third, the way we fence the table uh, and how that affects the experience of people at the table. And what, what he's inferring there is that we make it too much of a funeral and we need to make it a little bit more celebratory. Yeah. Um, so, so with each of these, you know, can we improve the atmosphere at the table? Absolutely. Can we remind people that this is not just individualistic but communal? After all, it is communion. Uh, huh. Yes. Uh, can, we, um, can we make the experience of the table uh, better so that it includes not only the death of Christ, but the fact, is, as Barker puts it in his response, he says, uh, not only do we come to the cross, we come to an empty cross. Uh, so mm-hmm. we, we serve a risen Christ. So there is, yes, there is an aspect of celebration there. Um, we don't disagree with any of these, but the... Uh, the aim of Myers seems to be, I don't know, correct me if I'm wrong here, guys, but my take on this is that these are concerns more with the evangelical church than they are 
the PCA in particular or the Reformed Church in general? But remember my comment uh, in general, well, back when we were dealing with Federal Vision stuff over a year ago, that when I first came to look at Federal Vision stuff, when I first started looking at it, trying to review it, think about it, uh, figure out why people were passionate about these things, 50% of the things that people were talking about were straight down the middle Westminster Confession kinds of things. And what that told me was... In terms of what they were agreeing on. Yeah. Yeah. In terms of what they were, quote-unquote, trying to recover, move their communions towards. Yes. So I don't think we we need to be careful that we don't misjudge that many of the folks in our own denomination or in other Reformed denominations um, are necessarily all that reformed in their outlook of things. That's true. And and see, <clears throat> Sean and Matt and I, you know, we all three uh, went to the same seminary, Westminster Seminary in California, and our experience of reformed communion, theology, church life might not be mainstream PCA. Um, and, and, and so I... You know, it is possible that some of Meyers' critique of the practice of our denomination at the table, it might be that in, in vast parts of our denomination that that it has become a rather doleful uh, ritual. I love his comments on page 12 where he says, Remember, the supper is a feast a joyful banquet where we dine with our risen Lord Jesus and with one another. And he says, in a normal Christian liturgy, the congregation will have confessed their sins and received forgiveness early in the service. So he's kind of saying, hey, let's move on. We've already done some of this uh, earnest uh, repentance and so forth. And then he says, tasty bread and good wine given by the Lord to his people and shared with one another. That This ought to be a happy, encouraging experience. And I, I really resonate with that, that we need to bring out the, the celebration. But like you said, Sean, Barker did us a, a, a good service by saying, hey, don't forget that when the Scripture speaks about these things, it says, you at the table, you... you show forth. You proclaim Christ's death until he comes again. So it is about the death of Christ at the table. And um, I, I think, it, like, have either of you seen the, the Luther film that came out maybe six years ago? Yeah. It, who was the actor that played Luther? It was, it was the brother of the guy who plays Voldemort, and I can't remember his name. Okay. But that's, there you, you go. You did a There's great you. job. And if, if, if anyone's heard that or seen that film, early in the film, Luther is doing, as a monk, he's, he's doing his first communion. And remember this scene where he is so nervous about it. He, he's, yeah. he has the, yeah. the cup of wine in his hands and he's shaking and it splatters down on the cloth and on the floor. And everyone is just dismayed. He's upset with himself. His father is disappointed in him. And to the extent that we, in our own way, do the same thing, where we're so uptight, wound up about uh, the, the ritual. perfect performance. Yeah. What worries me, really, about Meyer's paper and about his his speech to us at the colloquium is that he seems to be saying... 
uh, hey, it needs to be a celebration, uh, which I would think would lead us away from an emphasis on getting the ritual right. And, and, And yet some of what he recommends would push us into the same problem just with a different set of standards, you know? Like, hmm. okay, now we have to be all anxious and concerned that we get the ritual right in this other way. And I, I don't know, maybe that's a, an unfair reading of it. But Well, I no, definitely... No, no. I, go ahead, Matt. Well, yeah, I mean, I don't think that it's an unfair reading, but... Um, you know, I think that we we ourselves and we want our people um, sort of relaxed with the right mindset. Yeah, and I think good. that he's trying to he's trying to say, do we have the right mindset as we come to the supper? Um, right, and I, I, I don't know that we do. Uh, that a majority of my people do. Part of the right mindset, and th- this is where. I, I think I have my biggest problem with Meyer's approach is part of the right mindset is to remember not just <clears throat> what we should be doing at the table, but remember who is being offered to us at the table, that it's Christ. Um, so, you know, one thing that Jeff Myers was emphasizing was when Jesus <clears throat> had the the you know, the Lord's Supper with the disciples there in the upper room, he said, this do in remembrance of me. So Myers quotes us, he says, do this. And, and, and so then we're supposed to walk away with this idea, okay, the supper is something that we must do, and we must do it right. And in, in those words of Christ, right before the supper, he also says, this is my body. So, you know, we talk about the indicative and the imperative, Mm-hmm. The, the imperative, the command, is do this in remembrance of me. The the indicative, the the statement of of the wonderful reality of the gospel is this is my body given for you. And so if if mm-hmm. if we can emphasize that as well, I think we really will have a, a celebration of God's grace of the gospel. And that gets a little bit of the the emphasis off of ourselves and getting the ritual right, and more on, hey, here is here's Christ Jesus. This is uh, Christ. Placing the basis in not in our doing, but what in what, but in what has been done. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. There's a there's a passage in uh, there's a verse in Ezekiel 33. I don't know if I've mentioned it on the podcast before. Um, uh, God says, uh, this is the passage on the watchman, when God is instructing them on placing, you know, you know, watchman in the tower, and in case the armies come, the, the watchman can announce it. And, uh, and he, he turns from talking about the, the watchman to say this, when I say, says the Lord, when I say to the righteous, he will surely live, and he so trusts in his righteousness that he commits iniquity, none of his righteous deeds will be remembered. But in that same iniquity of his which he has committed, he will die. But when I say to the wicked, you will surely die, and he turns from his sin and practices justice and righteousness. If a wicked man, it goes on to explain what a wicked man might might uh, do in restoring a pledge, he says, he shall surely live, he shall not die. 
so the verse here where he says, when I say to a righteous man, do this and live, and then the righteous man so trusts in what he's doing that his doing of righteousness becomes his sin. Wow. It seems to me that that is, at least from my perspective, that that is the key problem in Reformed churches, is that we have a lot of people focused on doing the right thing, not realizing that their very doing of the right thing is sin. We have a lot of people who need to repent of their righteousness. What we don't have in Reformed circles is a lot of sinners readily repenting of their sin, a lot of wicked people. We have a lot of righteous people who need to learn to repent of their righteousness. And it, it seems to me that that is the direction that Myers may be taking us, is to a place... His emphasis on right experience in the supper, I appreciate, because it says to the, to the do-gooder, it says, you need to think about what you're experiencing here. You need to think about what's happening. You need to not, you know, think about yourself. Myers even says this in his paper. He says, not doing the ritual correctly can actually throw people back on their own inner resources. And and I can see that to a point. I can see that if we're just sort of having a ritual for no reason than other than having a ritual, people are going to make the, up their own reasons that, that we're having the ritual. And they're going to rely right. on their own little inner inner mass, private mass, to to deal with the reasons that they're having the ritual. But if we do show them correctly the corporate nature of what's going on and correctly set forth the, the life, death, and resurrection of Christ and correctly uh, set forth these things, yes, that's going to help people to better participate in the supper. And I would say if it helps righteous people to repent of their righteousness, then then we are doing it right. It sounds yeah, like it, you're... Uh, yeah. go, go ahead, Stephen. Go ahead, Matt. Well, it, it sounds like what you're saying is it's it kind of feels like we're creating a new righteousness. Um, you know, if you were doing the supper right, you know, God might bless you more <laughs> kind of thing. Is that what you're saying, Sean? Well, that that raises an issue uh, that I don't know if we have time for. This could be a whole nother podcast, but it's this issue: is does the federal vision rightly distinguish between the testaments? Because what you're saying, Matt, you know, do the do the whole do this and live. Um, if you do this, you'll be blessed and live long in the land. If you don't, you'll be cursed. You'll be taken into exile. Are those new covenant ideas? Or are those ideas related to the the, the prenatal church? Hmm. Well, I, I think they're definitely new covenant ideas, but they're new covenant ideas that have been fulfilled in Christ. Jesus, Jesus has done it right. And in him... By faith in Him, we're, we're united to Him, and in Him, we are counted righteous. I mean, it, it. So we are guaranteed blessing, even when we sin. If I could, if I could put it that boldly. 
if we are trusting in Christ, we are we are so uh, secure. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That even when I sin, I know that my sin. I I, I don't want to sin. I don't want to sin that grace may abound at all. But even when I sin, I know that I receive blessing. So it's no longer this idea of, uh-oh, I sinned, I might not get the blessing of Christ. It's, I've sinned, but my Savior forgives me, and I still get the blessing. Right. Some of that blessing that you would receive in your sin would be the blessing, if you want to call it that, of the fatherly displeasure of God against you and his convicting you by his spirit. So it, but I'm, I mean, I'm it, saying I don't, I, whereas an Israelite yeah. might lose the promised land by failing to obey, I don't lose heaven by failing to obey. Right. The eternal blessings yes. are solid. The temporal experience of those, of those blessings are, are going to be... Um, Connected in our in our walk of faith and so without, forth, without question. Yeah, yeah, but you know, Matt, what you were bringing up about Meyer's paper, it it right back to page one again, where he says, uh, "So, if the Lord's Supper, for example, does not accomplish what God intends, then it may be because of a couple of things." That whole mindset of, well, God intends one thing, but God isn't getting the results that he intended, it it just strikes me as problematic. I mean, it's the kind of thing that I hear from a lot of people outside of Reformed circles that don't understand the sovereignty of God, where they, you know, God would love to do all sorts of things in your life, but he can't because you're not making yourself available or something. You know what I'm talking about? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, I I think that that's an accusation in general in terms of Federal Vision theology is that sometimes it feels Arminian. Right. Um, I'm not accusing them of it. I'm saying it feels like it. Yeah. Um, You know, if in my experience, um, I can't know, for example, if I'm actually... Um, to the end, a believer in Christ, I can only know as I, as I personally stick with Jesus, so no actual assurance the way the confession talks about it that's possible, not of the essence of salvation, but possible for me to obtain in this life, if that's not something that's even desirable to have or possible for me to have. Um, it feels Arminian. Um, and this feels Arminian. That, that God, uh, if we're screwing it up, can't break through. Well, here's, here's the last line of his whole paper. If we as pastors oversee the performance of the right as God desires, it will accomplish what he intends among his people and in the world. If we don't, and we do the supper haphazardly or simply according to a traditional, maudlin, introspective, individualistic American piety— the administration of the sacrament may actually be counterproductive in the life of individual Christians and the church as a whole. Now, on on one level, yeah, that's true. On another level, it's what you're saying, Matt. Yeah, I mean, essentially saying God can't use crooked sticks. 
Now, does that mean we shouldn't try and straighten crooked sticks? Absolutely not. But we're we're not holding back um, the sanctification by pe- of people by our imprecise, imperfect doing of the supper. Which, frankly, will probably persist until we get to heaven. I expect there's all kinds of things I'm going to find out that I've screwed up, that I thought I was doing right. Yeah, that's that's really true in your case. (laughs) (laughs) With friends like these, who needs fellow podcasters? So we're we're um, we're approaching the hour here. Um, I wanted to get to the other couple papers. Uh, just just a couple questions um, on Ligon Duncan's paper. I think one of the things that he does remarkably well there. Uh, we talked about his uh, his concept of true communion, um, but what I think he did very well in his paper was point out that the uh, sign. Uh, does not necessitate the covenant. Do you, do you remember what I'm talking about there? He says Absolutely. That, he says, God, by giving Abraham the covenant sign, talking about circumcision, uh, did not enter into covenant with Abraham by virtue of that covenant sign. No, he says it's the other way around. God was in relationship with Abraham, and in order to reassure Abraham of the promises he had made to him, he gave him the covenant sign to confirm that promise. And it seems to me this turns what we've just been saying about Myers on its head. Because it's not... The, the, the sign is, is given, the, the bread and the, and the wine, and I presume we're still using bread and, and wine, or at least bread and the fruit of the vine. Um, when we give those, uh, even if we give them with a crooked stick... We're, we're giving, am I mixing metaphors here? I'm trying to bring your metaphor in here, Matt. But even <laughs> if, we, if, if we give them slightly incorrectly, maybe we don't fence the table in entirely properly. Maybe, you know, something's wrong. Maybe the air conditioner isn't, is on too high in the room or who, who knows what it is. But, but if we're giving those simple things, we're reminding people that God has made his covenant with them, not on the basis of them eating and drinking, but on the basis of what Jesus has done and on the basis of the Father's choosing of them from eternity past and on the basis of the Spirit's marking them as a guarantee. Well put. Right. Well put. I, I yeah, think it's and the you same can thing. find that on page four of Duncan's paper where he makes that beautiful point that, you know, especially concerning baptism, it, the baptism of the child, of the infant, uh, of believing parents, that, that baptism isn't what brings that child into the community, the covenant community. It's we baptize that child because they are already a part of the covenant community. And so Duncan is corrected. It's, its purpose, he says, is to assure, not to accomplish something new. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm adding that second part, but... No, but that's very helpful. I, I think it is, because it's not as though a, baptism is the public initiatory rite into the community. But we do the public initiatory rite because it's, it reflects reality. 
It's just like when we publicly receive members. I, I think the Book of Church Order does this right. We don't add people to our number in the public service, they're added to our number on profession of faith when we sit with elders. All we're doing in the public is saying we're recognizing what God's already done. He's added these folks to us. And here they're going to talk about that God's added them to us. So in a sense, all of our public um, doing in a service as it relates to people is testifying to what it already is. It doesn't create it. It, uh, it, it demonstrates, uh, what's the right word? Shows it forth. I'm not quite sure what the right word is, but you get the idea of what I'm saying. Yes. Well, this is all um, very practical stuff, and uh, I think that was the, the emphasis then of, of Rayburn's paper, is that it needs to be practical stuff. Uh, but perhaps the... And that is, and I would say that is the positive of Rayburn's paper, that he emphasizes that there is a, a practical reality uh, when we meet with the Lord in the Supper, um, that systematics do not necessarily address. However... Uh, in saying that, um, Rayburn seems to go almost to the point of saying the confession isn't... I, I don't want to put these words in his mouth, but it, it comes across as the confession is not useful practically. Well, I mean, just we'll just read his own words on this, because this, this, I really enjoyed Rayburn's speech and his paper. It it was humorous mm-hmm. uh, and heartfelt and, and helpful in many ways. But especially since this um, series of podcasts is on, you know, the ordinary means of grace, I think it'd be important to bring out something that I think is problematic about Rayburn's paper, uh, Pastor Rob's paper, page six. He says this. He says, after he has just quoted uh, the... Uh, Westminster uh, standards about uh, the, the means of grace. He says, now that is a statement that is both true and false. True enough in what it affirms, but false in the impression it leaves. It is a mistake built upon another mistake. And then the, here's, here's where it really gets interesting. He says, it was certainly a mistake at the outset to limit the means of grace to the word sacraments, and prayer. Are there really but three means of grace? Now, if you get back into the Westminster Standards and actually read it, for for example, Westminster Shorter Catechism number 88, it says, the outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption are his ordinances, especially the word sacraments and prayer. Our standards don't say only word sacraments and prayers, especially yeah. because then, then Rayburn goes on with some interesting comments to say, really, the discipline that of children in the home of, of Christian parents, the nurturing of children uh, by their mother and father, that this, he says, is a means of grace. And, 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 and it is. Yeah, <laughs> that, that's helpful, but... It, 
<laughs> Rayburn was making this big thing in his paper about how preaching really is not the primary way statistically that people come to faith. And I, I think his, his definition of preaching at that point becomes rather narrow. As if we're only talking about the Sunday morning sermon, as if the Sunday morning sermon doesn't have this wonderful trickle-down effect into the mother and the father so that their Christian discipline would be uh, a living out of these sermons that they've heard. So, And if faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God, no one comes to faith uh, external to the Word of God. I mean, no native on some island somewhere that has not heard the gospel comes to faith. Right. Right. And so... Uh, Ordinarily. Or, ordinary. Yeah, I mean, I, I suppose God could send an angel uh, to speak to those people on the native island, but he would, he would have to speak to them um, because they would have to know the gospel, they would have to believe the gospel, and that... Uh, you're right, Stephen. That that's where, um, like you said, Rayburn's talk was bless you, Matt. Uh, Rayburn's you. talk was was uh, wonderful. It was very, as, as Bar- Barker called it, very creative, uh, very good use of the imagination. Um, but at the same time, he he came across, and this is the first time I'd seen this publicly in in some of these guys. Is he came across as if the confession, um, he really doesn't like it. Um, you know, it's it's a good it's a good foundation, but oh, oh what's uh, here? I have a I have a quote from him. He says, um, he says it, it provides an essential foundation, but that is all. Now, I, I have to ask you if something is an essential foundation. How can we ever have in the next breath, but that's all? <laughs> because an essential foundation is just that, an essential foundation. Yeah, that's all. It's just, it's just the good tires on my car, which if they blow out, I'm going to be on the side of the interstate. You know, he, he makes the point uh, in, in here that, for example, he uses this example. He uses the example of sanctification in the Shorter Catechism and how the Shorter Catechism defines sanctification as this progressively upward movement as, as we progress in Christ. Right. Um, and, and he says that's a great example. And he, he said this, he said, when I preach to my congregation and I read that to them, I say this is wonderful and this is ideal, but this is wrong. So he, he, he gives them the confession and then he says, but I want you to know this is wrong. Because this is not really how it works, and for, uh, Will Barker was was remarkable in his response. Um, in fact, it's if you if you just listen to the first ten minutes of uh, the response MP3, that is that's Will Barker responding to each of these four guys, uh, worth the price of the conference. He responds by pointing. Um, Rob to the larger catechism, let me pull that up here, uh, question uh, 77 and 78. So he says, you think the confession doesn't say that sanctification is, is imperfect? Listen to question 78. 
whence arises the imperfection of sanctification in believers? And the answer is, the imperfection of sanctification in believers arises from the remnants of sin abiding in every part of them, from the perpetual lustings of the flesh against the spirit, whereby they are often foiled with temptations, fall into many sins, are hindered in all their spiritual services, and their best works are imperfect and defiled in the sight of God. Now, I would remind our listeners and my fellow podcasters, the larger catechism was written first. The shorter catechism was the abbreviation. This is, this is where the larger catechism in some ways is more thorough than the shorter catechism. Well, in, in almost every way is more thorough than the shorter catechism. But here, it, here it almost reads like the Heidelberg. It almost reads with that, with that devotional passion that the Heidelberg Catechism has. And you read this and you go, you know what, the divines did understand sanctification both systematically and practically. And just just a wonderful, wonderful answer there, um, obviously by the confession, but also by uh, Will Barker in response to, uh, to Rob Rayburn. And I would um, really be leery of sort of this new up-and-coming crowd that's saying we need to do away with the confession. It's old hat. In fact, correct me if I'm wrong, I thought, was it Rayburn that said something along the lines of if, uh, you, you know, the Calvin would would um, be appalled to know we're still using this confession? Was that Rayburn that said that? I don't know. I, I know that Rayburn would not say let's do away with the confession. That that would not be his view at all. He 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 wants uh, to see uh, men in our day continue to work on the confession to okay. improve it and to answer new questions that have arisen in our day. Uh, but what what some of his comments though could encourage others who do want to just do away with the confession because. Some of these unconscious statements, like, hey, the confession is both true and false, <laughs> it's a mistake built upon another mistake, the, the, the impression that, that he's speaking about, that, mm-hmm. that sort of language, I think, is um, imprudent because of how it could wrongly influence others. But for Rayburn himself, he, he's in no danger of throwing out the confession, not at all. Yeah, you're seeing on, on the blogs, uh, uh, some of the younger guys in this crowd are are definitely going that direction. They're, they're saying, you know, this is the confession, it's old hat, we're just not, um, it, it's not addressing all the issues that we want to address uh, it's an you know it's an essential foundation, but that's all. This kind of a thing, um, we need to we need to really be careful. There's a reason that the confession has been uh, has sustained through the years um, because it is solid. Now it is changeable, and there is a process in even in the PCA for changing that confession. Uh, my prayer would be that if we're going to make any changes, we make them to strengthen the confession, not to soften it. 
I think that's good. I think that Rob's plea, if I heard it correctly, was, and in great deference to Lig and to some of the work that our own denomination's done, um, I think he was saying, I think we can do this, which was interesting. Yeah. Um, that, I thought that was kind and considerate and and uh, deferring to a much younger man. Um, but I, I think that his plea is that, and this plea has been renewed. Um, I recently had reason to read the section that was added in the old United Presbyterian Church on the Holy Spirit in the early 1900s. And Warfield liked it. Um, and, and it was well written. This is prior to liberalism. Uh, we don't have that. Um, so it, I guess I'm not against the, the renewal of things or the looking at new things. There's a lot of things I wish that were in there. I think that's probably all of us. Um, but I think that's more the tenor of Rob's comment was, um, you know, maybe we should draft something that uh, embraces the strengths of what's already there but with a different view of things, um, because we are four centuries later, five, four and a half centuries later. Yeah, that's a great reminder, Matt. I, I had forgotten that uh, Rayburn did say that in the colloquium. He, he said, hey, Legan Duncan, you, you should put some of your efforts in this direction. We we would be blessed if you would be one of the, the folks that would really work on improving the, the standards. I mean, what, wasn't that the gist of what he said? Yeah. 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 And one thing that Rayburn said in his presentation, which I wrote down and really benefited by, was he said, Christ is the efficacy of the sacraments. Because that was the overall question. What We're here at the colloquium to talk about the efficacy of the sacraments, and, and Rayburn said, it's, it's Christ. He is the efficacy of the sacraments. It's the use that he makes of them. Don't think of the sacraments, he said, as things, as things in and of themselves, but as Christ's actions to us. That, that would seem to cut through a lot of the uh, problems if we held on to that. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, that's a great, I think that's a great note to end this podcast on. Christ is the efficacy of the sacraments. Uh, that's, that's what it's all about. Uh, it's about giving glory uh, to Him, to bringing glory to the Father through the Son by the, uh, by the enabling work of the Spirit. And guys, I want to thank you for being with me here today. Stephen, thank you for joining us. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks for letting me come in. Hey, would you be, maybe we'll, we'll have you back. Would you be willing to come back and do this again? Sure. See, we got, now I have you on, on recording as saying that. Yeah. <laughs> Matt, <laughs> Matt, uh, Matt, thank you, uh, again, uh, for joining us as always. And, um, my pleasure. For our listeners, uh, all three of them, we thank you for listening and we pray that the Lord would richly bless you as you pursue him through his ordinary means. Thank you.